this hour. Uh, the next battle over colorblindness has begun, so says University of Chicago law professor Sonia B. Starr, who authored a provocative piece for the New York Times yesterday. But we'll talk to her today, in fact, right now, uh, about the next battle over colorblindness already underway. Professor Starr, good to have you on this program. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. It's my great delight to have you. Glad we have an hour. There's a whole lot to unpack in this hour, and so I'm glad we got some time to uh, to work our way through it. Let, let, let me start with this. Um, I, I want to get your critique. Um, I want to start with your critique of this notion of colorblindness. And I say notion of colorblindness for two reasons. Number one, because I don't believe there is anything... There's no such thing as colorblindness, number one. That's my own assessment, and you're the, you're the author of the piece, so we'll let you have your say. So one, I don't, I don't, I don't believe there is uh, such a thing as colorblindness, so I call it the notion of colorblindness. And secondly, I, I remind this audience uh, from time to time when these conversations come up that nowhere in Dr. King's work or writings would you ever hear the phrase, the word colorblindness. Um, for what that's worth, take it. Uh, but you will never hear or find anywhere in King's work this notion of color blindness. I digress on that point, but I want to uh, commence, as I said a moment ago, with your critique of the notion of color blindness, and we'll jump from there. Um, yeah, great. Um, so uh, I want to start by. Uh, I want to take this in, in two parts, okay. right? So um, one is the general uh, idea of colorblindness and the role that it's played already in uh, developing, like, the the Supreme Court's law on equal protection, the way it influences um, American law. Um, and that itself has been... Um, uh, has been critiqued by by many scholars, including me, in uh, in other writing. Um, then I want to focus on uh, the next stage of the battle over colorblindness, in which the concept is really being pushed okay. um, uh, even further, and and that's the the thing that my um, New York Times piece that, uh, that you mentioned focuses on. Mm -hmm. So the general idea of uh, in in the law um, of Colorblindness. Um, it's a very contested concept, um, and the the idea is that um, essentially uh, it, it's a, it's sort of a rereading of what cases like Brown v. Board of Education stood for, right? With the idea that um, they stand for the idea that that the government can never make any racial distinctions between um, uh, between people no matter what the, the purpose is, right? If whether um, the, the purpose is to expand racial inequality um, versus um, to close racial gaps, um, that we should think about uh, governmental use of race as always being bad, regardless of its purpose, mm -hmm. right? So that's the general idea of, um, uh, of colorblindness. Um, there's also this kind of background, like metaphorical idea of colorblindness, this, this idea that government literally should be blind to race, mm -hmm. right? Um, it should, be, um, should not see race. Um, and you're right, of course, to, um, uh, to point to that as, as fictitious, right? Like that nobody, uh, nobody could fail to recognize the way that race has shaped American society, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the way that racial disparities still still exist. Um, and so I guess the question is, 
whether and to what extent uh, the Constitution is going to be interpreted to essentially require the government to pretend that it doesn't see those things, right, mm-hmm. and, to, um, and to prevent acknowledgement of racial disparity, um, exclusion, segregation, um, problems related to race, um, uh, to, to prevent government from taking those into account as it designs policy. Um, so it's, it's been the case for some years that a, a more limited form of colorblindness has been adopted as uh, legal doctrine by the Supreme Court. Um, and specifically what they mean is um, as applied to uh, what we call racial classifications. That's where the government takes race into account in deciding how to treat uh, individual people, right? Um, and, um, you know, historically, for, obviously for um, the vast majority of our history, overwhelmingly those kinds of governmental distinctions um, disfavored, uh, disfavored people of color. Um, and um, that, uh, and particularly black people, um, and, you know, we have the, the, the long history of, uh, of um, slavery and Jim Crow to, to illustrate uh, those points. Um, and in more recent decades, the Supreme Court has basically argued that, well, if we think those things should be, uh, uh, should be illegal, then it should, then we should at least also take a a hard look what the uh, what is called strict scrutiny, a, a tough constitutional standard to mm-hmm. to overcome. Um, we should take a hard look at policies like affirmative action. Um, and uh, justices, uh, the more conservative justices on the court, um, including um, the Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, have committed themselves to this idea that um, taking race into account. Uh, overwhelmingly, maybe not in every circumstance, but overwhelmingly tends to further the problem of racial discrimination. So uh, in a previous case, uh, the chief justice famously said uh, that the way to to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating based on race. And what he meant by that is just stop taking race into account. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where the, the law has stood until recently. Um, affirmative action had actually previously been allowed by the court um, in, in university admissions, but only under like a pretty, um, under pretty limited circumstances because the court had for some decades still applied these demanding constitutional standards like strict scrutiny um, to affirmative action policies. And so it had said, well, it can't be quotas. It can't, you, you, basically, you can't go too far. You can use plus factors, um, but you, you know, you, you can't, um, uh, you basically can't give too much weight to um, race in the, in the process. And you've got to consider race neutral alternatives to the, to the accomplishment of your educational objectives. So that's sort of where the sure. law stood before last week. So let me pause there. Um, yep. for, uh, since no, it's a, it's, no, it's a great place to pause. Um, I didn't want to interrupt because you've uh, laid a nice foundation. Um, that's where it stood until last week. And so we've got the rest of the hour to figure out where we go from here. Um, say nothing of all the questions I want to ask when we come forward based on what she's already uh, uh, shared with us. It's going to be a great hour. We're going to learn a lot in this hour, uh, and I'm going to push uh, to make, uh, make it a great hour uh, with a lot of questions about this notion of colorblindness. Our guest is law professor at the University of Chicago, Sonia B. Starr, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk. We continue our conversation now about colorblindness. Uh, the battle over colorblindness has already begun. 
um, uh, as declared by uh, University of Chicago law professor Sonia B. Starr in a brilliant piece yesterday in the New York Times, which I wanted to interrogate uh, today, and we're doing that right now for the rest of this hour on KBLA Talk 1580. Um, you suggested earlier, Professor Starr, and I think you're right about it, I mean, I think I know you're right about it, that this notion of colorblindness is a contested concept. That was your phrase, a contested concept. Uh, but it seems to be uh, seems to me to be a great deal more than just a contested concept. It is a dangerous concept, um, certainly um, inside the legal profession, inside our system of jurisprudence. It's not just contested to me and to many others. It's a dangerous concept. How would you respond to that phrase? Yeah. So I agree with that, and I especially think we're uh, that the 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 further it gets pushed, and I think we're um, there. There is a huge danger um, that a growing legal movement will try to push it very far indeed. Um, that it poses a danger to um, U- U.S. governments um, at all levels, um, local state, federal, um, and even many private actors, to their ability to address racial inequalities at all. Um, and um, let me explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, um, so, so first, let me acknowledge that even the, the more limited way in which colorblindness has existed already in, in, um, uh, in the Supreme Court's case law and in the case law of federal courts, um, even that has been... Uh, powerfully critiqued by um, by um, many scholars, uh, both inside and outside the law. So, um, I, uh, so um, people like Michelle Alexander, for instance, critique mm-hmm. it, um, its implications for the criminal justice system. Um, there's all kinds of scholarship um, on this, um, and and um, and I um, and you know the the argument, and, and not even just scholarship, like dissenting justices of the Supreme Court have also articulated that view. I think um, Justice Stevens um, had a, a a dissent um, in which he he said essentially there's no reason that we should apply these demanding legal standards, strict scrutiny, um, to efforts to help to close racial gaps, to make America more racially equal, um, because the whole point of having that that strict standard um, is uh, to make sure that the um, that uh, the vision of equality that the 14th Amendment, um, the Reconstruction Amendments stand for, um, is brought into reality, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we should not think the same way about um, policies that seek to subordinate people by race, like Jim Crow, as we do um, to policies that intend to provide um, opportunity for people who um, have been traditionally subordinated, um, like affirmative action, right? Um, and so that, in and of itself, was the the existing, pre-existing colorblindness doctrine um, already um, had a lot, uh, you know, had had these problems baked within it. And so I, I do want to acknowledge that. Um, um, and then. Um, maybe I should pause there before I turn to what I think the next set of dangers are. No, we'll, we'll come to that next set of dangers. Trust me. Um, uh, we got time to do that. Uh, but, but, but I want to inject right now, uh, given what you've just said a moment ago, uh, about justice, uh, the Supreme court, uh, chief justice, John Roberts and Clarence Thomas and others in that, uh, 63 majority who believe that the way to deal with race discrimination 
is to not discriminate on race. All right, nice turn of phrase. I like it. It's it's cute. <laughs> but I'm trying to juxtapose mm-hmm. that notion against that advanced many years ago by Justice Lewis Brandeis, who suggested the exact opposite. That you cannot, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know that you you know exactly the quote I'm referencing, that you can't address race without first taking consideration of race. You can't address it. Uh, without acknowledging, acknowledging, acknowledging it, if I can say it, and taking consideration of it. So obviously, and this is no surprise here, inside of our own U.S. Supreme Court, there is this divide, uh, this political divide, I might add, over how uh, to deal with this notion of colorblindness. And I wonder if you might speak to that dichotomy inside the court itself, not just recently, but over a period of years. Yeah, um, I think that uh, dissenting justices have um, uh, the 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 colorblindness view of this has held the majority for some time, um, with the exception of university level affirmative action. Um, but there have been powerful dissents for a long time, and um, I, and the dissent last week um, by Justice Jackson um, was is uh, a a current example of. Um, and by the way, and by the way, really not, not 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 to jump in, but I will for. Just just a second, forgive me. By the way, it was brilliant. I have rarely, I mean, she, she's the newest justice on the court, of course, um, but her dissent, Sonia Sotomayor's was brilliant, but that dissent by KBJ, I told our audience last week, I think it was, that you have to read it. You have to read her dissent last week. Her writing is brilliant. Her reasoning is brilliant. Um, dissents, as you well know, as a law professor, do in fact matter. I just want to interject there. If you have not read the dissent by KBJ um, in this affirmative action case, please Google it, find it, do yourself a favor, take a few minutes to read that dissent. Carry on, Professor Starr. I'm sorry for the interruption. Yeah, and I think she powerfully um, kind of gives the lie to the idea that you know, America can somehow consider itself to be past racial inequality. And I think that for advocates um, uh, of the colorblindness movement, that's that's what they want to believe, right? That this is a historical phenomenon that maybe pops up in kind of narrow circumstances as opposed to something that um, has really structured the, the, the mm-hmm. modern opportunities of, of, um, of people today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes uh, goes through um, history, um, both of racial disparity in America and of the the um, the Fourteenth Amendment, um, to uh, to to make that case. Um, so um, yeah, so so that's um, so. Let me uh, just talk about the the way in which last week's decision changed the law, and then the next wave of cases that I am worried about. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, the way last week's uh, um, decision changed the law was essentially to get rid of this affirmative action exception, at least in the context of of university admissions. So the case involved um, Harvard College and um, and UNC, um, and, um, you know, they had affirmative action pro- uh, programs that in many ways are similar to those used by other elite universities, and they articulated reasons for them um, in terms of the educational benefits of diversity. And basically, the court said, well, you know, we're not even going to really get to the application of strict scrutiny here because we don't think you've articulated, um, we don't think you've articulated interests, um, those diversity interests are too amorphous to allow us to even meaningfully 
evaluate um, whether you've tailored your policy to them. Um, and so they, they basically just reject the importance, um, or at least the they, they say it's commendable goals, but in, but not coherent enough, basically. Um, and so they, they, uh, they basically decline to uh, take seriously um, those uh, educational benefits of diversity. And as, as a result, the affirmative action policies um, of both colleges fall. And, um, you know, everybody, I think, believes that with possibly limited exceptions like the service academies, um, which they, they might uh, treat differently, um, um, the, that, that will apply very broadly um, across the educational landscape. There will soon be litigation uh, applying it probably to um, affirmative action and hiring. Um, and so um, in general, uh, this was a huge blow to affirmative action. Um, the next um, the, the next wave of cases that I'm concerned with go beyond extending the colorblindness principle to bar affirmative action. Um, and instead, they want to realize a much more radical vision, uh, even than that, of colorblindness in which you have a government that is basically blind to, that, that is, is, you know, truly pretending to be blind to racial disparity and declining to address it with any policy tools at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, uh, so let me explain what this next line of cases is. Um, so in, in affirmative action cases, um, or w while this affirmative action case has been pending, um, there's been lots of discussion about, well, so if affirmative action um, gets struck down, what will universities do to try to maintain diversity on campus, right? I think that conversation is happening uh, very much in, um, in public media, in the sure. public conversation, and sure. I'm sure that it's happening behind closed doors in admissions offices, right? Um, they are worried that affirmative action has been an important tool um, to uh, providing opportunities for, um, for, uh, for promising students um, which race-blind criteria um, may have overlooked, right? Um, and, so, um, and so they want to be able to, they still believe in the educational benefits of diversity, though, um, and want to try to preserve them in other ways. And affirmative action has, has been an important tool, but it's never been the only tool that, um, that um, schools use to try to preserve diversity, right? Um, you can think of uh, financial aid as a tool, right, because it... Um, uh, because it provides opportunities for people who can't afford uh, college. You can think of targeted recruiting, right, um, as, uh, as an important tool. And also um, just the uh, things like um, giving a preference for um, poor kids or for kids who have overcome various other dimensions of diversity um, or uh, geographic preferences. So, so an important uh, historical example of this is the Texas 10% plan, um, mm -hmm. which was adopted when a local um, federal court um, in Texas struck down the University of Texas's affirmative action policy. Um, they, um, this was you know, more than 20 years ago now, um, they adopted this plan to allow the top 10% um, of students by grades 
um, in each high school to have access to the University of Texas, right? Um, and the idea um, is that geography intersects so strongly with race, right? We, we have um, housing segregation um, and uh, very different racial compositions of, um, of different communities. And so if you provide an opportunity for people to come to a school uh, that cuts across different geographies, that that will uh, have the effect of increasing um, uh, racial diversity on campus. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then even things like the debate about what weight, if any, to give to standardized tests, whether to require them, um, whether to take them into account even optionally, whether to give them um, uh, weight in the process re um, relative to grades, or weight given to other um, uh, criteria like athletic sure. participation, et cetera. Right. Um, all of those things have potential effects on diversity. And, um, and so um, I think it's been common and I think will be increasingly important in the absence of, of affirmative action for universities to be taking that into those those taking uh, diversity questions into account when they're making all these other policy choices that are themselves not about race right like they're not about using race in the process right. but they have impacts because we know in our society that um, that uh, socioeconomics and uh, geography um, are strongly correlated with race right so 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 what most what most uh, concerns you? What are you most afraid of? I've got 90 seconds. We'll continue on the other side of news, so, traffic, and so on. But what most concerns you about this next wave of cases as you as you frame it? So the next wave of cases are going to fight schools' ability to do that. Right, um, right. At the, the, we're going to see these cases at the university level, and we're already seeing them at the high school level because high schools, um, some high schools are competitive, even public high schools, magnet schools. And those um, and uh, many of those schools, they don't use affirmative action, but they do use some of these other tools, and they're already getting sued. And these cases um, stand for a much broader principle, which, um, uh, which would be, I think, more dangerous, which is the idea that um, even using race-neutral tools, mm. um, uh, schools can't do anything to promote diversity. And that, would even, that principle would have an impact even beyond education. Um, it. it would affect all kinds of policy. So when we come forward um, after news, traffic, and sports, I want to come right back to that point. Um, these um, legal challenges forthcoming vis-a-vis uh, -vis admission policy, admissions policies at these uh, uh, high schools and colleges uh, that seek racial diversity through race-neutral measures. Even that is going to be under attack. That's the point that Professor Starr is making. Um, they don't want affirmative action. They don't even want race-neutral measures. Uh, how does that work? We'll talk about that. And, 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 and we'll talk about this notion of these legal conniptions, as it were, that we are going through um, to try to pretend as if um, we are colorblind. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, so just put a pin in that for the moment. We'll continue with uh, Sonia B. Starr, professor of law at University of Chicago, when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, with us in this conversation, that we continue now with Sonia B. Starr, professor of law at University of Chicago. Uh, we're talking about a, a brilliant piece, provocative piece she wrote yesterday, authored for the New York Times, called The Next Battle Over Colorblindness Has Begun. Uh, and just before the break, um, we were starting to uh, work our way toward what that next wave of cases looks like. And one of the things that we're going to be battling uh, in the months and years to come, now that they've done away with affirmative action in 
uh, college admissions, uh, I said this last week, uh, they won't stop there. Uh, it starts with college admissions and next it'll be contracting, next it'll be employment, uh, and on and on and on the list will go until they do away with any sort of corrective policy um, that ushers people of color and others who've been uh, disavowed uh, into the room. Um, talented you have to be, but uh, these corrective programs at least usher you into uh, the space uh, of proving yourself. And so they start with affirmative action in education, as I said a moment ago. They won't stop until they attack it in every uh, aspect uh, of our of our lives. That said, uh, Professor Starr uh, was making the point that part of what we're going to get in this next wave of attack on these corrective programs like affirmative action uh, is an attack on uh, institutions that seek racial diversity through race-neutral measures. So it's one thing to not want affirmative action. It's another thing to not want racial diversity through even race-neutral measures, Professor Starr. Yeah, so um, so so um, let me talk about um, an example of this next wave um, of, of litigation. Um, so the most prominent case right now, and the one that if this issue goes very quickly to the Supreme Court, the, one, the case most likely to take it to the Supreme Court, um, is a case called Coalition um, for TJ um, uh, versus the Fairfax County School Board. Fairfax County is a county in Northern Virginia near D.C. Um, and uh, TJ stands for Tom, Thomas Jefferson, the Thomas Jefferson um, High School for Science and Technology. happens to be the high school that I went to, um, and that's, that's um, what uh, brought me uh, – to um, begin working on um, this, uh, they gave me a special interest in these cases, and I've been working on them from a, a scholarly perspective for um, for a while now. Um, and um, and uh, the, this case, Coalition for TJ, um, is a challenge to the admissions policy of a competitive high school. It's um, it's a magnet school. Um, it is uh, one of the top schools um, in the country. Um, and so, uh, you know, people really want slots at this school. Um, and uh, the, the politics, including the racial politics in Northern Virginia um, surrounding it, um, have become uh, hotly contested. So for, for decades, um, there was controversy about how few black and Hispanic students um, were admitted to, um, to TJ. Um, and um, just to give uh, a sense, um, his, um, historically, prior to 2020, um, for, for a number of years, uh, TJ's entering class had been about 1% to 2% black, um, whereas the county is about 10% black. Um, and it had been about maybe 3%, um, uh, varying a little bit from year to year, 3% Hispanic, whereas the county is 27% Hispanic. Um, the, uh, in recent years, the school had been um, had had a substantial Asian American majority, and so we see this um, uh, situation similar to um, what we saw in the, the college level affirmative action cases, mm -hmm. um, in which um, in which Asian American plaintiffs are. Um, the ones who are challenging um, uh, racial diversity po policies. Although I should say that um, the the steps that TJ ended up taking to um, to promote racial um, uh, racial diversity um, enjoyed the support of a very large fraction of the of the Asian American community in um, uh, at TJ and 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 in and in Northern uh, Virginia. But there were some people that um, uh, that were that were upset. So let, let me let me say what TJ did. Um, so um, so they 
so in 2020, um, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, um, there was a lot of political pressure um, to start taking seriously um, racial disparity issues um, that a lot of institutions had sort of been letting slide for, for a long time. Um, and the Fairfax County School Board um, became uh, particularly embarrassed by um, some uh, by uh, released numbers that summer that showed that the incoming class um, for TJ, which is like the crown jewel of its um, of its school system, um, had uh, a number of black students that was just reported as um, too too small to report. Um, and um, uh, and the number of uh, Hispanic students was also uh, was also very low. Um, and uh, finally, the um, after facing this issue um, for some time, but not really doing much about it, um, the school board um, held meetings that were intended to address the issue. And so they were um, they were also looking at other issues like the the underrepresentation of poor kids um, at TJ. It wasn't just about race, but they were not hiding the fact that a concern for racial diversity was part uh, was uh, part of the motive for yeah. why they decided to reform TJ admissions. Okay. Um, and here's here's what they did. Um, so um, first, they shifted away from a standardized test um, to. Um, to a grades-based admissions policy. Grades had always, of course, been part of admissions, um, but there used to be a high-stakes test, and they got rid of it. Um, then when evaluating students based on grades, um, they uh, created some um, – they, they basically reserved some slots, kind of like the university – the University of Texas had done with its 10% plan. They reserved some slots for students from each middle school in the county. Um, and so that was essentially like a form of geographic um, affirmative action, making sure that less represented neighborhoods sure. mm -hmm. um, had students there. Um, and they gave a plus factor for poor kids, students on the free and reduced um, price lunch program. Um, and uh, a couple other things, English language learners got a plus factor, um, and um, they also increased the class size, which really sort of should have softened the impact for everybody. It creates, creates more, a bigger pie, more room for, um, for people of, but, but what of happened? all races. But what happened? Um, okay. So, um, so, it, uh, so the policy, uh, first, um, in, when the, the first year's admissions came out, the policy was basically modestly effective at increasing um, black and Hispanic um, representation. Didn't right. bring it to anywhere close to their shares of the county, um, uh, but, um, but did increase it quite a bit over what it was um, before. And also, by the way, was wildly successful at improving the um, representation of poor kids, which went from something like 1% to 2% to 25% of the class. Um, so, um, so uh, but uh, then um, they got sued. Um, they got sued by an organization called the Coalition for TJ, um, which was basically um, aggrieved parents um, who argued that the policy was um, – uh, discrimination against Asian Americans. And um, they were pretty pr um, uh, careful in how they made this argument. Um, they didn't claim what lawyers call uh, anti-Asian animus. Like, they didn't claim that the school board 
had a problem with Asian people, right? Instead, they made this argument that um, that uh, there's a zero-sum trade-off in admissions. And uh, since Asian Americans were the majority of, um, of TJ's class, it was obvious that if to the extent that you increased representation of black and Hispanic students, um, the Asian American share was going to go down somewhat. Um, that's sort of just math. And they argued that the fact that that's just math meant that you can't really differentiate the aim of helping black and Hispanic students gain representation from a desire to reduce Asian representation. And so they said, basically, the, the mere fact that yeah. it's trying to promote racial diversity should be seen as discrimination against Asian Americans. So, so let that's, me, that's the legal theory of the case. I got it. Let me, let me pause there for a second, because um, this, is, this is the rub, right? This is the rub, that even when you advance race-neutral measures, you still are subjected to lawsuits. And to your point, this is one of those cases that's making its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. I remind this audience oftentimes that the U.S. Supreme Court chooses the cases it wants to hear. That's why I can guarantee you that the fight uh, to gut uh, these corrective programs ain't over. It won't stop with admissions. It'll be contracting employment and beyond, as I said earlier, because they get to choose the cases they want to hear. What do you bet? Just take a wild guess what the options are what the what the what the, what the optics are and what uh, uh what the uh, what the what the chances are that the supreme court will choose this case to hear i digress for the moment we'll continue when we come forward on kbla talk 15 well i mean i think that uh, then what is the, the vision that the that the plaintiffs in this case have and their and their lawyers who have also brought similar cases in several other school districts um is for um a, a sort of fantastical um, uh, vision of a colorblind America mm -hmm. in which race just doesn't count in government policy. And I think that I, I want to say, by the way, you, you asked, the, you, you posed the question right before the break. Is the Supreme Court going to take this case? I don't know if they're going to. I actually think there's this case, uh, the theory in this case goes very far beyond even what they did last week. And I don't know if there are enough justices that want to go that far. I'm quite sure Justice Kavanaugh doesn't, because in his um, in his concurrence, um, he talked about it being okay for government to um, and schools specifically to try to promote diversity through race neutral means. But that still leaves five of the justices in the majority that didn't join Justice mm -hmm. Kavanaugh in making that statement. And so where all five of them stand, I think, uh, is, uh, you know, I could talk about each of them individually, but the, but basically we don't know how many votes there are to go as far as the plaintiffs go, uh, want to go in these, in these next wave of cases. Yep. Um, the, where the plaintiffs want to go is very far indeed, and I don't think we should expect it to stop at education. Um, I think that if the, so, so just to be clear, um, this, this school, TJ, um, in their current policy, just like under their old policy, admissions officers don't have information about the race of the applicants, right? They, they are not taking race into account in any way whatsoever. It's just that the school board, when it decided, oh, we're going to give weight to grades instead of test scores, um, we're going to um, uh, um, take socioeconomic disadvantage into account, those decisions, which are not decisions to take race into account, those decisions itself were made with awareness 
awareness of their um, their uh, potential for improving racial diversity. Um, if that's illegal, right? So that would go way beyond right. what the courts has said already. What the court has said already is, um, at an individual level, you shouldn't take race into account. But what they want to say is that the goal of reducing racial inequality um, and the goal of promoting diversity, that those themselves are bad goals. They're unconstitutional goals. And if that's true, then it's hard to see how that logic stops at um, education or even at diversity, right? It could also extend to um, goals of reducing other kinds of racial disparities in, in society, like um, economic disparities, employment disparities, um, wealth disparities, health disparities, like the big gap in maternal mortality, for example. Sure. Um, those, those kinds of, of disparities um, motivate a wide variety of government policies that are not race-related, right? So uh, that is that they don't take into account. But it's like if you um, adopt, say, a jobs program and you place the locations um, for where the job training program is in um, neighborhoods, uh, in, in, say, um, maybe black neighborhoods with relatively low um, employment um, rates. And the, the programs themselves don't discriminate based on race, but they did have uh, the the goal of closing race gaps in employment and um, uh, in mind when they mm. adopt a policy uh, that might be problematic or like policies to try to reduce that maternal mortality gap no, those think, might be problematic think, under under this plan of theory. No, I think your your uh, your use of the word problematic is charitable, generous, and kind. I digress. We'll continue with our remaining moments with Sonia B. Star when we come forward on KBLA Talk fifteen eight. Conversation, uh, we lose um, Professor Starr, and this program ends, for that matter, at the top of the hour, about three minutes from now. So let me let me offer this as, I think, the exit question, which is, as a professor of law, University of Chicago, what do you make of the way, uh, the ways that we are essentially turning legal flips, if I can put it that way, um, to advance this notion of colorblindness, which is to my mind, a joke to begin with. But what what do you make of the of the legal conniptions that we're going through to try to make this stick, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, the theory that these uh, plaintiffs want to push in these these new cases, which which you could see as advocating something like total colorblindness, right? Government shouldn't even consider race in any way even with race-neutral tools, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that theory, what it depends on is taking a theory that grew out of traditional civil rights litigation, this idea that sometimes the government does things that look race-neutral on its face, but it's for a purpose to subordinate people based on race, right? That's an important principle in traditional civil rights litigation, right? I, um, we don't necessarily want to trust that what the government says is its motive really is its motive all the time. Um, um, but they want to turn that to the context of what something that I think Americans across the political spectrum have taken for granted for many years, which is that it's okay for government. I, I think we've largely taken for granted, and even like Republican presidents, and um, you know, this is not a partisan issue. People have taken for granted that it's a legitimate goal for government to try to reduce racial disparity, right? Mm -hmm. For government to try to promote diversity, and. And um, 
these cases seek to undermine that consensus by taking this principle from one context where it's been important, right, from this, this traditional civil rights principle, and flipping it, its, uh, flipping it on its head, right? That's their vision of colorblindness. They say, um, you know, the law has to apply in a mirror image form, no matter whether the policy is trying to promote racial equality or reduce it. Um, either way, if if government's thinking about race, that's a problem, yep. right? Um, and that's, that, I think, is a very radical sure. and dangerous principle that would effectively lock racial disparities into place by preventing government from having any tools to address them. So here's the real, real, real exit question in 45 seconds. Um, whether you, I was going to ask whether or not you think we'll ever be successful at this, and that's not the right question. The question is whether or not you think America truly cares about balancing equality and diversity. I think that America is too diverse to generalize about in that way, right? I think that um, our society is riven by a lot of disagreement on this issue. But I am hoping that most of America at least won't want to go this far and that even the current Supreme Court won't want to go this far. But I am worried, yeah. um, and we're, we're going to see what happens. I am hoping as well, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, her piece in the New York Times yesterday, which... Uh, 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 caused this conversation uh, to come your way today in this hour is called The Next Battle Over Colorblindness Has Begun. You can find it at the New York Times. The Next Battle Over Colorblindness Has Begun, authored by Sonia B. Starr, law professor at the University of Chicago. Professor Starr, good to have you on. Thank you for the piece. Uh, thank you for your insights. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Great to have you. That's our show for today. Back tomorrow morning. Lord willing to do it all over again. Time now to make room for the KBLA Midday Money Chain up next to the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson, followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Najee Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, we got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Until tomorrow morning, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.